and welcome to a special episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we have Fred Hicks, who's joined us many times on the show before. Fred, welcome back, my brother. Thank you, my man. Glad to be back. Well, I don't need the introduction. We don't need to go through the first question. Georgia is on everybody's mind. Uh, what's your prediction for tonight? I think we're going to have a close election, and it really all depends on what the what the turnout is um, today. So, you know, going back to the November 8th election, Senator Warnock beat Herschel Walker with early voting, during early voting, uh, both in person and by mail, but he lost election day by close to 220,000 votes. Um, we all believe every sign, everything points to a, a successful early voting effort again. And so the question is, did he build up enough of a lead to withstand an election day uh, potential wave from Republicans? But so I think most of us think it's going to be very close. And uh, the feeling is that Senator Warnock will prevail, but it's going to be very close. One of the things that we saw in this race was a hell of a early vote machine run by the Georgia Democratic Party and more in particular Warnock's campaign. I mean, talk about what that looks like. I mean, I, he's he apparently is going to um, he apparently is going to come out about 62 percent to about 30 percent for Herschel Walker. What does that look like? What does that mean for the electorate? Well, if it comes out, if it plays out that way, then that would mean that he had about uh, about 10 percent of Republicans crossed over and voted for him. But looking at both our data and data generated by a company called T- Target Smart, looks at about 52, 53 percent of the early voters were Democrat and the remaining portion were are Republicans or uh, yeah, the Republicans. And so if he's able to get 62% of the early vote, that means that 10% or so of, of the re- typical Republicans who voted, voted for him. And then that means that today's going to be pretty easy and it won't be that close. But, um, you know, we just never really know how, how the early voting party is going to turn out. Um, you know, most estimates are somewhere between 100 and 200,000 votes in terms of the lead that Senator Warnock is banking going into today. Uh, but if he's at 62 percent, then that would that would indicate um, north of 200,000. And that gets gets him into pretty safe territory. But again, you know, for anyone who's listening to this before the polls close today, don't sit back and think that he has it. If you are interested in supporting Senator Walker or Senator Warnock, ooh, please edit that out. <laughs> Senator, Senator Warnock. Yeah, now nah, we leaving that, that we leaving that in there. We leaving that in there. If you if you and Kanye West, oh Kanye no, West. don't put me in there. Kanye, Kanye, Kyrie. Nah, no, 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 not me. Uh, tell me but about no. this. Tell me about the voter suppression bill that passed. And yeah. one of the questions that I had is, it seems as if people over the past four weeks and leading up to November eighth still turned out to vote. I mean, talk to me about the impact that it had. Is it much ado about nothing? Are Republicans like Jeff Duncan right? Are activists right? Talk to me about that bill and its impact. So the bill that you're referencing is what we call SB202, what Republicans dubbed the Election Integrity Bill. This is a piece of legislation that passed after Georgia flipped in 2020. So Biden won by fewer than 12,000. And then Senators Warnock and Ossoff uh, won in January 2021. And so against the backdrop of the big steal and the insurrection, um, Georgia decided to pass an Election Integrity Bill. Now, I will say there's a lot of good stuff in that bill, but there are a couple of things that are really bad in that bill as well. This bill was designed on the left, people would say, to suppress the vote. And Republicans or people on the right would say it's just making sure that everyone who is legal and registered to vote can vote. And so one of the things that they changed from 2020 to 2022 was that you cannot register in the runoff. You can't move to Georgia and register and vote in a runoff. Uh, not that really happened in 2020, but they wanted to, quote unquote, prevent that. But here are the ways it was really impactful. 
that significantly impact on how how why we're here, why we are where we are. Number one, it shortened the runoff period from two months that we had in 2020 to four weeks now. Number two, it made it um, it increased the requirements uh, and pl- put additional requirements in place for you to vote by mail, including putting your driver's license or some state ID number on a form. And a lot of people are not comfortable doing that because people were not comfortable with the idea that their data would be secure. And then the third thing that it did is it limited the number of drop boxes, that is the places where you can drop off your ballot um, you know, at your convenience, and then it moved them. So it limited the number of drop boxes and it moved them from being out in the community to inside government facilities, which means that you can only drop off your your, your ballot sometime during, between like nine and six, whenever you know, the, the, the government building is open, but that generally is nine to five, eight to five, nine to six. And so, when we look at this election that just took place and the election that's happening now, we can see the impact of that. Number one, in 2018, four years ago, you had 3.93 million people vote in that midterm election. Over a million people registered to vote uh, in Georgia between then and now, but yet you essentially had the same number of people who voted this year, 3.94 versus 3.93 four years ago. Part of the reason for that is if you go back and look at the people who voted early and voted by mail, you see hundreds of thousands of people who voted by mail in 2020 who did, and or in the Dropbox who did not vote in this election. So those might be people who are working um, during the day, people who are who travel for work for any number of reasons that um, the convenience that we saw in 2020 actually you know, led to an increase in voter turnout that we didn't see this go around. So yes, people voted early, but when you look at the overall turnout and the November 8th election versus four years ago, it was essentially the same in terms of the absolute number, but it went down. And that's an anomaly, Bakari, because we saw an increase in 2020. We saw a record number of, turnout, record number of people vote in the January 2021 election. Mm-hmm. So, and a runoff there, but then you turn around a year and a half later and you have a significant drop off in terms of percentages. And that's also impacting this runoff. So in a four-week period, you basically do not have votes by mail. You only have 50 or 60,000 or something like that ballots. Um, I think that are you know, a very small number. So around 100, less than 100,000. Whereas millions of people voted by mail in 2020 and in the runoff. So you're talking about a percentage, 10%, 12% of the number of people voting by mail. So you a significant drop off. And this is something that ACLU or George is looking at as they're preparing their litigation for next year around this is they are asserting that SB202, while you have high numbers of voters in terms of, okay, yeah, you still had almost 4 million people vote, but the number of people who did not vote um, and who used drop boxes and or votes by, by voting by mail last time dropped off significantly. We should have had about 4.3 million people vote on November 8th instead of 3.93. So there about 400,000 people who didn't vote who should have voted and 300,000 of those are black folks. We had almost, I, <clears throat> I ran an analysis on it. We had 296,000 black voters in Georgia who voted in the January 21 election, right? The runoff. So we're not talking about presidential. We're talking about a January runoff that was right after Christmas and New Year's who did not vote on November 8th of this year, almost 300,000. So there's definitely an impact of that legislation um, on voters and particularly on African-American voters and African-American voters in the metropolitan area, which is where metropolitan Atlanta area, which is where we saw the biggest drop off. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important 
to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is a 50,000-foot view question that I get asked from people around the country. I mean, Democrats, Republicans, black, white alike. How can this race, and describe Georgia, describe Georgia in these terms, but how can this race be close when individuals are objectively able to see how unqualified Herschel Walker is? And this isn't like a, oh, I think he's unqualified because he's running on the Republican ticket or he's a black Republican or any of those things. This is someone who, as my daddy said, he don't speak too good. So <laughs> how, how well, explain in the context of Georgia why this race is actually this close. Well, Georgia is still Georgia. That's the first thing, right? And so this idea, this notion that Georgia is a blue state or a far left state or a progressive state is simply false. Georgia is still Georgia. You've had a Republican represent Georgia in the Senate almost every year since 1993. The only exception was like a two-year gap um, after Paul Coverdell died and former Governor Doug Miller was appointed to, to hold that position. And then Governor Miller, of course, caucused with the Republicans. So in essence, you've had a Republican whether in name or in party, and, and, and at least once in a position in Georgia for 30 years. Also, once Republicans took Georgia in 2002, their power, their share of the power grew with every single election to the point that going to 2020, every single statewide office in Georgia was held by a Republican. So because Joe Biden won in 2020 by fewer than 12,000 votes, um, and because Senators Warnock and Ossoff won a couple of months later, people started thinking of Georgia as this blue state or progressive state, and it's not that. Secondly, I want to take out, go out a little bit, zoom out a little bit, and think about this in terms of the southeastern region. You're from South Carolina, I'm from Georgia. Um, when we look at the entire southeast from Louisiana to Virginia, people, I think, will agree that they were going into this cycle, there were four states that were considered swing states. That's Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, and Georgia. Well, Glenn Youngkin surprised everyone and won in Virginia last year. Uh, North Carolina went red, and we all know what happened in Florida, where we went from 32,000 votes four years ago and 12,000 in the Senate in the uh, Senate race, or 20,000, to a 15 and 17 point lead for Republicans or win for Republicans, respectively. So when you look at the entire Southeast, Bakari, Senator Warnock is the only Democrat statewide in any of the southeastern region states that had an election last year and this year to actually even make it to this point. 
And so when you look against the backdrop of the region, when we talk about nationally, Republicans didn't do as well as they thought they were going to do, didn't capture the number of seats they hoped to get and all that. But in the Southeast, down here, they did. They had a great day on November 8th, with the exception of Senator Warnock. So when you look at history and you look at what happened in the region, the fact that it's here, um, I think speaks to the still the conservative streak that we have in the Southeast and even in a place like Georgia, um, more than just about anything else. So, uh, but now, now that all of that is done and people are able to really focus in on this race, I think to your point uh, earlier, if uh, Senator Warnock did get 60, 62% of the early vote, that's because all the other noises died down and people have heard Herschel Walker speak and they see him for what he is. He can't, behind, he can't hide behind Brian Kemp. He can't hide behind some of the other statewide candidates. It's just these two people going at it head to head and the comparison is, uh, and, and the differences are stark. And to, to outline just and go a little deeper with your analysis there, we're going to have, if, if Raphael is able to pull this out, we're going to have an interesting conversation about what type of candidate wins in the South because of the fact that you have John Bell Edwards, who's a very conservative Democrat in uh, Louisiana. You have Pat, now I keep wanting to call him Pat McCrory, Roy, Roy <laughs> Cooper in North Carolina, and then you have someone like Raphael Warnock. They're, they are legitimately three different ends of the spectrum of the Democratic Party. And so that's going to be kind of fascinating. Uh, is it fair for me? They're, both, they're both coming up. And so they weren't on this cycle. They're coming up in the next cycle. And yeah, this that's a very good conversation to have because, you know, you have to look and wonder, are there lessons to be learned from Georgia if Senator Warnock is able to pull this off that, that Governor McCrory and, and Bill Edwards can can apply? Let me ask you this. Are you, is it your assertion that Georgia is a red state and that Brian Kemp's performance this year in 2018 basically confirmed that? I think Georgia is a center, center right state. I won't say that it's a red state. Listen, a Republican, just by being a Republican at this point in Georgia, is going to get 48, 49% of the vote uh, just reflexively. So the question is, can they get over the hump? Uh, we thought and, and many of us hoped going into this election that pretty much the same was true for Democrats. Um, but looking at what happened other than Raphael Warnock, um, it looks like the baseline for Georgia is still under 40, for Georgia Democrats, 45, 46%. And you have to really work and be above above the uh, punch above your weight to get across that 50% line. So, um, but I want people to understand that Georgia is still- And for those, who, and for those who don't understand that, those who don't understand that, in Mississippi, Alabama, and South Carolina, for example, if you're a Republican, you started a 52% baseline. Um, mm -hmm. I, guess, I guess Fred's assertion, which actually sounds accurate when we look, is that uh, a Republican in, 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 in Georgia now starts at a 48, 49 and still has to work slightly to get above that 50. Um, Absolutely. And that's a big difference between Georgia and South Carolina, the other states you just mentioned. You know, four or six years ago, Republicans started with probably a 51, 52 percent baseline and that's fallen. So they do have to do work. They just can't they can't win just by putting an R, you know, registering as an R or running as an R. But um, and that's a little bit of a difference. But they do start with very close to that finish line. In place already. With Stacey Abrams now losing twice and Raphael Warnock potentially winning twice, is the Georgia Democratic Party his party now? And what role should a major senator play in being a national figure for Democratic politics in a state as critical as Georgia is now to the Democratic power in Washington? Yeah, I think that um, it definitely is his party if he if he's able to win um, and the role that he plays, I think will be very interesting. Number one, I think it's important to understand that Senator Warnock has raised more money than any other uh, Senate candidate in history, um, and any senator, and uh, cumulatively. 
So he, when this is all said and done, he will have raised a little bit more than $300 million over the last uh, three years from the time they announced at the end of January 2020 to now. So I think one of the big roles that he can play is a big role he can play is raising money and uh, and giving the coordinated campaign and the party the ability to fight and to compete, not just in election years, but what Democratic Party is going to have to do is they're going to have to be active and compete for hearts and minds and souls and votes during off years period. So 2023 is going to be really important. The 2024 election will be won or lost in Georgia for Democrats in 2023. So his ability to raise money, his ability to take this infrastructure and go out there, and then also uh, his messaging. And so Senator Warnock, we talked about this last time I was on, you know, Senator Warnock and J.C. Abrams ran two very different campaigns with two very different types of messaging. And so when we look at this, I think there's also a lot of help around messaging that we can see from Senator Warnock. And then, of course, you get into candidate recruitment, um, you know, the kinds of candidates that Democrats put forth in Georgia. But first and foremost, the ability to bring in the financial resources that that the party is going to need to compete the questions that I'm going to be asking tonight on TV and many others are going to ask, and I think it's also true after the fact that you have these two cycles, partial cycles, and you have a record, um, you know, there are other issues, but is is Raphael Warnock a presidential contender? Well, I think when you throw in the potential change to the primary calendar, if he wants to be, I think he certainly can be, assuming that the president does not run for re-election. Raphael Warnock is not going to run against Joe Biden. But if Joe Biden does not run for re-election and the Democrats change the schedule such that South Carolina and Georgia are at the front of the schedule, so at the back end, uh, Senator Warnock, I think, will be could be a very formidable force if he decides to do it. But even if he decides not to run for president, he will be, for certain, he will be the most influential Democrat in the Southeast. And the election, the nomination will go through him, again, assuming that President Biden does not run for re-election. So whether or not he runs... He will have a say in who the next president is. And I think that puts him in prime position for for even something like vice president if he decides to not to run for president himself. But $300 million, five elections, beating two different types of Republicans, going against Donald Trump's handpicked uh, candidate for Senate. That certainly are some, uh, that, that's a strong record in a series of bona fides, so to speak, or bona fides, to joke. Um, that would make him a very viable candidate, I think, for, for anything he wants to do. And well, again, we'll help him would give put him in a position to have a lot of say in who the nominee is if he himself does not run. What does a Democrat in Georgia who's running for governor have to do to pull this off? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think you have to start from the position of understanding, again, that Georgia is a center, center right state. And so while progressive policies are important, I think how you talk about them and which policies you choose to emphasize are going to be really important. Um, you know, Governor Kemp really hammered away at the idea of the fact that he had 107 sheriffs endorsing him and that uh, State Abrams didn't have any. And then we also, of course, saw the Abrams campaign didn't really prioritize having in-state uh, supporters, in-state endorsers. They brought in folks from out of state, but they didn't really highlight their in-state support. So my advice to anyone who's running for governor is, number one, you know, line up your in-state supporters. Number two, you know, pay attention to what Brian Kemp did. And his whole campaign was what I would call Georgia first. So you can have money from out of state, you can have support from out of state, but you have to have a campaign that's focused on Georgians and people have to see you as really caring about Georgia and wanting to be here. Um, And then I think, you know, the last piece of that is that you have to find a way to be moderate on issues like public safety um, and law, crime and law, and those kinds of things. 
and then pick your places, pick your positions where you want to be a little bit more progressive. Uh, you can be progressive on issues like the like the climate. Um, so we have a lot of EVs in Georgia. So you can be progressive on things like um, you know transportation infrastructure and moving stuff towards electronic, not electronic, but electric vehicles. But when you get into a lot of the social stuff right now, and when you get into a lot, you know, a lot of policies that kind of skew away from an economic sort of uh, an economic focus, then you get into trouble. So, you know, understand Georgia, have support within the state, and you know, pick and choose your policy positions. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What's the post Stacey Abrams um, 2026 gubernatorial bench look like? Ah, great question. So I might get a little trouble by naming some names and leaving some names off, but um, I think there's a lot of talent out there. I look at someone like, uh, when I look at the field of elected officials, I look at someone like State Senator Sonia Halpern, um, who's who was elected here recently to fill the seat that Nakima Williams uh, vacated when she went for when she won Congress. So I think Sonia Halpern's strong. I think that someone like uh, Rodney Bullard, um, you know, who's um, went to Air Force Academy and uh, went to Duke, UGA, lawyer, former U.S. attorney. Uh, he currently works at Chick Fil A, so he has a lot of cross appeal. I think of someone like him who's who's outside of office. His father was a preacher. He's a Georgia boy. Um, I think about people down in South Georgia, middle and South Georgia. I think about. Someone like um, the mayor of Brunswick, Cosby, he's a young guy, so maybe not 26, but down the line. Um, outside of African-Americans, I think of someone like a Jason Estevez, who was the Atlanta School Board Chair and who just won the state Senate seat. Um, he's Afro-Latino from Columbus. Uh, so he, he raises, um, I think he, he has a lot of potential. Um, and then, of course, you, know, you have people who are, who are not yet on the radar, but of those who, are, who hold sort of prominent positions and Georgia, those are the names that come to my mind. Jason Estevez, Rodney Bullard, Sonia Albert, and Alcazar Johnson. You know, I think Jen would be very interesting. Um, I, she she acquitted herself quite well. Uh, she received more votes than Stacey Abrams did in this election. So I think that she's going to, um, you know, she's from middle Georgia, even though she lives in Atlanta. 
So I think that she could be a very strong candidate as well. Um, it's a question of where does she go from here? Because you know, four years from now, she will have spent four years out of office. And so how does she keep her keep her name ID up um, and keep herself relevant? But I think that she's a very strong candidate and she has a strong narrative. Um, and again, she did receive more votes than Stacey Abrams. So she can build on that because that means that obviously she has some appeal out there. Um, so I think she could be strong. And, um, you know, your spellhouse sister, Alicia Thomas Searcy, um, you know, who ran for state, state school superintendent, I think she still has a future in the party. She's young, 41, 42. Um, you know, traditional old school Democrats have an issue with her being a school choice advocate. But we've seen that voters, especially black voters in Georgia, are okay with school choice. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with her down the line. And then, of course, I can't forget the mayor of Atlanta, right? Um, Andre Dickens is, so the mayor, just by virtue of being the mayor of Atlanta, you're always going to be talked about and thought about um, on a statewide level. So I think the mayor there is, is someone that um, can also raise the attention and, and raise money and someone that people can can consider. He's very likable. He's been very present. Um, obviously, the crime stats in Atlanta are an issue, but he's 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 very, very, very visible. And, and to that end, um, I have to also talk about the former mayor, <clears throat> Keisha Lance Bottoms, who's working in the administration. And people have floated her name quite a bit as well. So I know she said that she's going to leave the administration at the end of the year um, after the midterms. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what's next. But those are those are two other people as well, in addition to Jen Jordan, who I think um, can make some noise if they decide to do it uh, from from between now and then, between now and 2025, 26. Last question for you. What do you think about Georgia becoming one of those early primary states due to the diversity, the leadership of Andre Dickens, the mayor of Atlanta? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I love it. I love it. You know, you need states that reflect the United States determining or if not determining the nominee, but whittling down the field. Right now with Iowa and New Hampshire um, really serving as the vetting posts for the Democratic Party, that's really problematic. Not that, you know, I don't know people have asserted that, well, white voters don't matter to the Democratic Party anymore. It's not that. It's just that uh, other voters matter as well, and, uh, and they need to be on equal level. So South Carolina being a caucus, Georgia being a primary state, um, and other states across the, the country moving up earlier, I think is good. I think it's, um, I think that it, it, um, It'll give us better candidates, um, but it's also going to be kind of interesting from a finances perspective because you know with Iowa being a caucus, you start early and you build a lot with the um, you build a lot on the ground. But Georgia has the you know Atlanta's the sixth largest media market and the third or fourth most expensive media market um, in the country, and so that changes the money game for sure, and that it's going to cost a lot more because you have to be up on on air in Georgia and South Carolina. Um, a lot earlier in those media markets, I think a little bit more expensive than New Hampshire and, and Iowa. So I'm happy for it, but it does change the game in a couple of significant ways if it happens. Well, Fred, I want to say thank you very much for joining the Bukari Sellers podcast, working through any technical glitches we had. Today's a big day in the great state of Georgia. I got I got Raphael in the Warnock. country. I, well, yeah, in the country, <laughs> in the country, actually. But I got Raphael Warnock with 51 percent, Herschel Walker with 47. We'll see what happens. All right. Well, I like those numbers. Um, I will say this one thing, one, one more thing we didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, you know, people have talked about Democrats, have, they've already secured the Senate. And I want to emphasize this to people because I know this is going to go up before voting closes. Democrats have not secured the majority. This seat 
you will secure the Senate for Democrats. 50-50 means that you have a power sharing arrangement, which means you still have committee, committees that are chaired by Republicans, which means that people like uh, who are running, who, who are trying to get appointed as ambassadors or trade representative or to the courts, that they, they have a much more difficult time. If you care about Katanji Brown-Jackson, you want to see more of her. If you want to see people like if you're in Georgia, you want to see Calvin Smyrie get up, get his um, uh, ambassadorship to the Bahamas. If you want to see these other people who have just been waiting, then you need to vote for this seat because 51 is very different than 50. And if the Democrats have 51 seats, that means that they will they will get to appoint all the committee chairs and you will be able to see these, the backlog of appointments um, or nominations for appointed positions cleared out early on. So this seat is very, very, very important. And it's very, very important to Georgia and to Georgians. My brother, thank you so very much for joining us. We'll reach back out to you. Have a blessed one. Thank you, you too. Be good. Be easy.